George Affleck in today for Jill Bennett uh, and all week as well. Uh, so for the past several years, Polling Company Research Co. has been tracking the views of British Columbians on automated speed enforcement. The concept entails uh, relying on cameras or sensors to pinpoint when a vehicle is speeding and issuing tickets uh, to the vehicle's owner. Historically, historically, actually, BCers have, have not been really happy about these cameras. I think we all know that. It's been quite a lot of anger about this concept. But actually, attitudes appear to be changing. Joining me to talk about some of his latest polling is Mario Conseco, president of Research Co. Hi, Mario. Hi, George. Great to talk to you. You too. Thanks for joining me. What, what have you learned on your recent, uh, in this recent data that you've pulled on this uh, getting ticketed by robots, basically? <laughs> well, it's been remarkably consistent over the past four years. Uh, this year, we have 71% of British Colombians who are in favor of the use of spin on green intersection cameras. So this okay. is essentially your old camera that used to take pictures of you whenever you run a red light being retrofitted to actually capture vehicles that are speeding. This has been done in some places already. There are 35 of these devices that have been installed in BC since 2019. Obviously, not every one of the red light cameras that we have has this system, uh, but it is in some parts of the province. And what we found over the past couple of years is that people definitely like this idea. I, I, I seem to remember several years ago when they tried to bring this in, and it was really there was major pushback saying it was like against your freedom. And, uh, and that, I guess that was over 10 years ago, maybe. I'm trying to think it was back in the VC Liberals, but that, that definitely is that mood has changed. Well, it's been definitely different now. You know, I do remember. Right after the election of Gordon Campbell as a uh, BC premier in, in 2001, one of the first things was to take away right. the concept of auto radar. And at the time, it was one of the first actual issues that was dealt with by that government. It's a little bit different now. And you know, one of the things that has been really remarkable as we've been tracking this is this used to be an issue where you had the policy divide depending on who you voted for. You had a, mm-hmm. a lot of people who voted for the NDP saying, no, no, we have to keep voter radar. You had a lot of BC Liberal voters saying, no, we have to scrap it. Hmm. And this time around, whether you voted for the Greens or the NDP or the Liberals, you believe that the concept is something that is worth exploring. Is it because we've become more, you know, our centrist or are we, are we, is it our political <laughs> leanings as a province? As we had, you know, we've got an NDP majority now, uh, so therefore the majority, I mean, is that literally what's happening and that there's a, that the mood has shifted like our politics have shifted? Um, it's a little bit of that. I think we have definitely seen uh, residents of BC moving closer to the center and, and mm-hmm. maybe not having the same type of, of a, a polarization that we saw before, particularly during the latter years of the Christie Clark tenure. Uh, but there's also the idea that this is going to be reducing crashes. It's been an interesting year as well to do this because, mm-hmm. you know, for the first time in a long time, people got a rebate check from ICBC. <laughs> so, you know, the idea that we're actually reducing the number of accidents, whether it is because of COVID-19 and having fewer cars on the road, but it's making people really think twice about this and say, well, maybe if this is a way I can get a rebate check every year, let's go for it. <laughs> okay. Dream on, I would say, but uh, let's try of that. <laughs> Where do we stack up nationally? I and mean, actually, maybe even regionally and nationally. I mean, is there a difference in the north versus, say, and then there's a difference between B.C. and Alberta? Well, regionally, it's, uh, it's, we, we see a lower level of support in Metro Vancouver. And this is the place hmm. where most of the cameras that have been retrofitted mm-hmm. are actually operational right now. But it's still at 68%. So it's not a situation where you have Metro Vancouver, I that said against this, and everybody else in the province being in favor of it. The level of support is higher in Northern British Columbia and the Fraser Valley. 
and this is also crucial. It's high in Vancouver Island. Well, there's only two of these cameras right now, both of them located in Nanaimo. So part of the problem that we have here is there's a lot of people who like the concept, but there's not a lot of places where these cameras are actually working right now. So definitely something to look into in the future. And there's a difference between the red light camera, like the speeding cameras, and then there's the running, running the light cameras. And those are, are they the same camera or, or is it different cameras? Well, the same camera can be used for the two things. Okay. Uh, the main issue that we have right now is that it's a fairly expensive idea. And there's only 35 cameras that are actually working in order to capture uh, cars that are speeding. So you have more than 100 cameras that are red light cameras. They are placed everywhere, but only 35 of those are actually working with this new system. So it was supposed to be a very quick pilot project. Uh, It's been there for almost two years. And I guess we'll have to wait and see whether ICBC or the BC government decide to go a little bit uh, further with it. Uh, But right now, we could argue that the... most of the BC population is on side with this idea. Is it a cash cow, though? Can it be a cash cow for municipal governments who uh, control their police? It's a moneymaker for police. Giving tickets out is how you, how you make big bucks. <laughs> well, it's definitely something that can be used for that. I think part of the problem and one of the reasons for the level of support to be where it is, uh, and what I mean by this is it's not universal, mm-hmm. is the fact that this is going to whoever owns the vehicle. You know, part of the problem with this is it'll <laughs> So if my son takes my car and burns through a light and races down Granville Street, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a ticket. And it's going to be a <laughs> ticket for you because the insurance is on your name. I and he'll be like, that wasn't me, time. Dad. That wasn't me. No, no, you must have been driving <laughs> fast. That wasn't me. <laughs> they carry the responsibility right wow. now. There are other places uh, in, in North America that have implemented different systems. Uh, and, you know, it's not what we're using right now. There's one that is called point-to-point enforcement. So essentially you have a radar at the start of a specific route and mm-hmm. one at the end. They capture your speed, they take the average, and then they send you a ticket. That, those, that, that was a little more contentious when we tested. Um, but ultimately, I think part of the situation here has to do with the notion of reducing uh, accidents. And, you know, I think one of the things that is definitely frustrating for a lot of motorists is, um, and we see this whenever we're walking through any city, uh, we see those little billboards that say, did you witness an accident? Were you here on right. Friday? Yeah. Whatever. Um, you know, this might be a way to stop those things from happening. Do you have polling on cameras in general? I mean, when I watch a British crime show, they're always going, oh, let's go check out the CCTV camera and see what the CCTV said, and then we'll f- solve this crime. Uh, but we don't have that kind of infiltration in BC. In fact, we get pushed back hard. Governments get pushed back hard on cameras everywhere by various groups who are unsupportive of this intrusive nature. Of Do, do you have, is there, is, is there a shift, do you think, uh, in general, in accepting cameras in our society? society as something to to monitor us you know it's something that i haven't asked for a while uh, but the last time i had the opportunity to ask this and mind you it was about 10 years ago mm-hmm. the level of support was higher in the united kingdom than in the united states and then canada was at the bottom and at the time hmm. the united kingdom was spending a lot of money on cameras it was one of the obsessions at the time <laughs> uh, from the government that was headed by gordon brown uh, you know have a camera everywhere and let's see what happens so because nobody has actually championed this issue, I think the level of support would be low, but it would be definitely worth checking. It sounds like a new contract for you is uh, get some money out of somebody to, to help you do that <laughs> poll there, Mario. Uh, Let's do, it. do you ever see this trend going the other way, though? Do you see, uh, you know, that politics can change and suddenly people are going against this, that this could become something that goes the other way? And what do you, when well, you I see think- those things happen? 
yeah, I, there's definitely possibilities of that happening. You know, when we've seen this level of uh, changes when it comes to the use of technology for law enforcement, it is usually preceded by a large event. And I mean, we could look at 9-11 and everything that happened in the United States. Mm-hmm. We could look at specific crimes that happened in areas where they decided that they wanted a camera, that they wanted something different. Um, we have been spared from something like that. So in a way, we should be thankful that we don't have those nasty experiences that mm-hmm. lead us there. Um, because that seems to be one of the key so to the exercise. What happened in the UK was that, you know, you had a bunch of people who were complaining about everybody being in the same place and being responsible for crimes. Right. It was easy for the government to say, let's just install cameras and, and you know, see what happens. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right, Mario, thanks very much for uh, this information. I appreciate it. My pleasure, George. Anytime. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett today, and uh, in about uh, 15 minutes or so or less, uh, we'll be going live to the press conference from the provincial capital to hear about uh, stage three or step three, as it's called, uh, as we exit what we hope is the COVID uh, nightmare that we've been in for a year, over a year now. Uh, but, you know, one thing before we get to that, uh, you know, the heat has been hard uh, on our bodies this week. You know, you, this has been crazy. I mean, the temperatures, record temperature, world, you know, in Canadian records, breaking records all over the place, Lytton at 46 or 47 degrees. But what's it, what is this heat doing on everything around us, on sewers and roads and our buildings and our trees? The run on air conditioners, for example, just shows you how unprepared we are for how how changes into the climate are affecting the way we live and what we should do in our day-to-day lives. Joining me to talk about this is Sandy James. She's an independent city planner. Hi, Sandy. Hi, George. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining me. So uh, I saw a story about heat, and I think it came actually out of Washington, but it it talked about how the roads were buckling from this heat, that the actual blacktop was cracking and creating real treacherous situations for cars. Sidewalks were starting to snap. The actual concrete was snapping. Are these, is this, this is not normal. This is, this is surprising. I mean, you'd think we'd plan for this, but clearly not. Well, I think, George, that we sometimes, we, we never thought of climate change as actually happening. Mm-hmm. But in Seattle, between 1971 and 2000, they had an average of three 90-degree Fahrenheit or 33-degree Celsius days. Mm-hmm. And then between 2015 and 2018, they've had an average of 10 90-degree Fahrenheit or 33-degree Celsius days wow. a summer. So we're, we're, we're starting to see the trajectory. But Seattle, um, about... 44% of houses have air conditioning. And, and as you know, we don't have that in Vancouver. because no, we're. I don't know we anybody have, with air conditioning. Exactly, because we have these, this wonderful thermal that comes in the evenings, and mm-hmm. we're used to very uh, wonderful um, and cool evenings. And so it's, it's, it's starting to be new territory for mm-hmm. us. But this run on air conditioners is not a good way to solve it. I mean, to throw in a temporary measure like that, um, can't be, it's obviously not good for the environment because those things are, you know, beasts when it comes to power um, and not the best choice. There's better ways to cool your home, is there not? That's correct. And air conditioning is actually responsible for about one-fifth of energy use and, in fact, is the same amount that powers all of Africa. Wow. So part, of it, part of it is looking at how to build smarter how to have more canopies. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we're lucky in, George, because we've got these lovely wide mm-hmm. canopies because of the amount of rain in commercial areas. But mm-hmm. it also talks about building in shade, about looking at the importance of trees, 
um, about misting water bottle stations. Mm -hmm. And my very favorite topic, George, we really need good public washrooms (laughs) where you can splash some water on your face and have them staffed. And just to think about shade in a different way. Yeah. Olympic Village, uh, those homes that we built there, are they not a different kind of system that is uh, for cooling and heating? Yes, they are. They're actually uh, powered by waste that's flushed down the toilet, Hmm. and they use that to regulate the temperature. But, you know, one of the things I always think about is a a marathon that happened in Chicago in 2007. Mm -hmm. And during that race, 180 feet, 85 people got ill, and one person actually died because the temperatures went beyond 26 Hmm. degrees Celsius. And 26 degrees seems to be the problem for humans. Mm -hmm. So in response to that, the marathon organizers and the city of Chicago put in myriads of of street trees. And that actually lowered what we call a heat sink Mm -hmm. in the city um, by up to 2 degrees Celsius. Wow, just by putting trees on the streets. Just by having a very good street canopy. And we need to do better at that. Another thing to look at is how we do asphalt. Mm-hmm. Asphalt collects heat. And you should always check if you're taking your puppy out right now. Put your hand down and see Don't how hot it is. pause on, the, on that black concrete. can be painful, <laughs> exactly. I'm sure, yeah. And, and it's the same as people that are um, under asphalt shingle roofs right now. It's very, very hot. Uh-huh. But there are coatings we can put on, white coatings on sidewalks and on streets and non-glare coatings and also on rooftops that actually really bring down the heat and uh, reflect it and not absorb it. This, and in fact, sorry. Go ahead, go, go ahead. Yep. Well, you know, in fact, um, if you think about concrete and asphalt, that can go up to 67 degrees Celsius, and roofs can go up to 50 to 90 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. And it's just a and, waste of energy, though. We're using That's not being used or utilized. I know Elon Musk has come up with new tiles for capturing energy, and there are lots of technology, but quite often it's really expensive to do these things, and so it's easier just to build the way we've always built. And, and if you can avoid doing these kinds of new policy, you know, new ideas, uh, you do, I think, for builders because they need to keep the construction costs down. Absolutely. And part of it is to look at what has worked for millennia. Mm-hmm. And what has worked for millennia is providing a lot of street trees, a lot of canopy, a lot of green, and that also solves a lot of the carbon problems yeah. and helps with people's wellness. But also to look at, at coding things. Mm-hmm. Um, if they found in Sydney, Australia, simply by adding water features, and cool coatings reduced air temperature by 2 degrees Celsius and meant that cooling requirements went down by 40%. But planting trees can be also precarious. We have an aggressive tree planting plan in Vancouver with a certain number of trees to be planted, but the challenge is keeping them alive. I live on Richard Street, and I, I was watching the construction. There's a new bike lane being put down Richard Street. I don't know if you followed this process, but yes. it's very interesting because I was like, why is this taking so long? And why are they digging down so deep? As it turns out, they've dug down so deep because they're putting a line of a second line of trees along there, and they're doing it so that they can capture all the water that's flowing off the tree that will go deep into the underground so the tree's roots can grow much deeper than they've used in the past. And, I was, and it's really complicated and expensive, but they won't have to worry about watering the trees. Like they, you know, if you look at the other trees on my street, they've got these bags around them now to, that they fill up with water to keep them alive because there's not enough water underground to keep them alive. And this is, this is the kind of extent we have to go in order to meet this kind of canopy you're talking about. And, and George, I think that's okay because you can't put a cost on a tree that's also sucking up carbon. The life of a city tree over 50 years exhales 6,000 pounds of oxygen. Uh, just imagine that. Yeah. But part of it, companies like Deep Root have developed this technology to how to put the tree right in. And that's a much 
smarter way to go than like the city of Chicago. What they do is they expect a street tree to only last five or six years. Mm-hmm. But That's it, crazy. imagine the taxpayers aren't really aware of that. It's much better to just put the tree in once, yeah. do it correctly. Dig, dig it deep. And, yep. And, and allow it to mature and provide some kind of shading canopy. From a design point of view, just a last question about what should we be doing and what shouldn't we be doing for cities as they build out in this new world we live in? And hoping we can turn things around. But if we have to live in what's happening right now, what should cities be doing and what shouldn't they be doing? Well, we have to make cities safe, comfortable and convenient for walking, George. Mm-hmm. And we have to make it so that every citizen can feel comfortable leaving their house getting to a bus stop, knowing that there's shade. Um, so part of it is looking at how to make that happen mm-hmm. and, and, and have non-glare, non-glare sidewalks, mm-hmm. coatings on, on streets. Um, and, and even in Toronto, they have a public library system that calls people in hot weather mm-hmm. um, if they're seniors and are registered library users. Just having a way to start supporting people mm-hmm. and making, making it easy to get water, easy to find a bench, easy to find ways to mitigate during the heat. Because if you literally walk around a city, you can really get a sense of the challenges, especially when it's hot out or when it's cold out or when it's whatever out, of what needs to be designed. It actually literally opens your eyes to the design possibilities of what you need. And that, and that has repercussions, positive repercussions as far as canopy for trees and all those other things that you mentioned. So that's really interesting. So for those people listening, when you think about your city, and Vancouver is certainly a leader in the world as far as its design, but every city should be thinking about these things, right? Right. And the other side, George, is, is the way that you mitigate for heat is the same way we mitigate for rain. Mm-hmm. You know, by having a good tree canopy, uh, having surfaces that aren't slippy and making sure that people can get out and move qu- quickly and comfortably uh, without being belted on in rain. It's the same kind of thing that we have to start thinking about for shade and canopy. All right, Sandy, thanks so much for joining me. It's very interesting and I appreciate you taking the time. Always a pleasure, George. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett today, and the press conference is continuing on in, uh, within the provincial government here about the uh, step three. And I think the key area with that most people were interested in this, one being the end of the state of emergency, which we've had for over 400 days in British Columbia, which ends on July 1st. The other is the updated mask guidelines. And I'll just read these out because they just came out. Mask wearing is re- recommended in indoor public spaces for all people 12 and older who are not yet fully vaccinated. Fully vaccinated means 14 days after receiving your second dose. Some people may choose to continue to wear a mask, and that's okay. We'll, we all need to get our own pace, uh, to go at our own pace. The face coverings order under the Emergency Program, Program Act will be lifted, at, and no proof of vaccination will be needed. So those are some of the, the main highlights on the, va- on the mask thing, which is something we've been wearing since the fall. And, and now that we're in step three, we, the mask rules are changing. Uh, but what does that actually mean for uh, all of us and for potentially actually retailers? I think that's where we're really you know, facing uh, the industry that's sort of going, well, what about us? What are we going to do about this? Yesterday, for example, when we were talking about masks, we had a caller who said she thought people should wear masks inside for the long term. I mean, basically, she said, people come into my shop. I work. I'm a front, you know, front worker. I see people all the time. And these people come in, they cough on me and I don't like it. And she's sort of advocating that we should perhaps wear masks all the time when we're indoor, no matter what bugs we have on us and beyond COVID. To talk more about this in the retail sector, I'm joined by Greg Wilson, Director of Government Relations at the Retail Council of Canada. Hi, Greg. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. So this news going into step three, it's obviously exciting news on the business side, but it's also a challenging 
for your industry on the on the on the worker side. Uh, give me your sort of thoughts first on what you've heard about the the, fate, the step three here in BC. Well, I think it's being well telegraphed by Dr. Henry and her officials, so it's not like this is a surprise to any British Columbian. But I mean, essentially, we're moving from an era of masks are required. Mm-hmm. Um, into a please wear a mask situation. So when I go into a store, I'll wear a mask because that's what the sign asks me to do. And you think people will uh, follow these rules? I think in the main, British Columbians are reasonable. And as long as there's a recommendation from public health that we wear our mask indoors, I think most British Columbians will do that. Let's talk about the impact of not only the mask, but COVID-19 on the retail industry. What kind of numbers have you seen over the last 16 months as we've worked our way through this? You know, it's been harmful most for the, for the retail stores that cater to tourists and for those that cater to um, things like fashion and accessories, mm-hmm. things related to travel or things related to going to work or celebrating. And these are the people who've been hurt the most. And so um, we're hoping for them that uh, they'll now, you know, see a return to sort of a greater number of customers and more sales because that's what it's all about in retail. The concern that I mentioned off the top about this one worker who feels, uh, you know, vulnerable. And and do you see, I mean, you say you put up signs, but if we move forward, uh, especially into step four, where there's really completely back to normal, um, with the retailers that are within your association, what are they saying? And, and do they not want complete freedom to be able to go back to normal so they can have their the kinds of revenue they had before? I think everybody wants to go back to normal. I don't think there's any question of that. But I think we're also accepting that in many ways today we are going to a more normal universe. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of retail stores, the most important aspect of today's announcement is about occupancy. So occupancy limits are coming off, and that means for very small retail stores, they can have more customers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when somebody walks by their store, that person can just walk in rather than standing in line. So I think that's really what's important today. Um, getting rid of some of the things that cause irritation in stores, either friction between employees and customers or between customers themselves. And so, yes, I have uh, I hear a lot of sympathy and a lot of people agreeing with that person who's worried about their mm-hmm. customers. But I think in the main, people are pretty trusting of Dr. Henry and Dr. Henry's recommendations. While the lineup, getting rid of those lineups has, has a great appeal, though, you're, you're putting the pressure on the people who work in those stores to deal with people. If, it gets too, if there's too many people in a store, uh, it's up to staff to now manage that situation. Does that not become challenging? Well, the current rules have um, actually been harder for smaller retailers than for larger retailers because smaller retailers are the people who've suffered under these restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, the evidence is that that's where the sales have been hurt in in fashion, in tourism, and in smallest businesses. So um, the, the, our view is that what's going to happen is it'll make it easier. The old rules didn't um, contemplate the existing separation that happens in a greengrocer where you Mm -hmm. might have vegetables in between aisles or um, in a butcher shop where you'd have a counter between the employees and the customers. Mm -hmm. So the rules weren't flexible for those businesses. And, you know, they're now free to make the decisions that work best for them. And it doesn't mean they have to go back to normal or it doesn't mean they have to be crowded.
crowded, it means that they get to choose what works best for them and for their employees. Are there things that you, that the industry went, wow, that's a great idea. We, uh, we really want to continue doing that. Yeah, I think what we'll learn is what survives. Um, what for mm-hmm. retail we've learned about is a lot of curbside pickup um, has been very popular with customers, and I expect some of that will continue. And, you know, we've had an increase in e-commerce, and I expect mm-hmm. to some measure that will con- continue too. Do you f- did you feel that, that – was there a data that showed that the e-commerce surgeons uh, that, that happened because of COVID – um, push the clock forward faster for the more traditional retailers that they had to reposition themselves quicker than they were expecting? Yeah, it was very rapid last spring mm-hmm. and hard to execute. And there are still delivery issues to this date. But, you know, what we've learned before is when restrictions were lowered last summer, a lot more people returned to the stores. And then as the restrictions increased and, and anxiety increased over cases in the fall, um, traffic decreased again. So we're expecting that we'll see more traffic, and uh, that's a good thing. Yes, yeah, certainly. So, certain amount of excitement, potentially, to get back to yeah. those kind of traditional things that we did. What about liability? Is there any concern about um, this being precedent-setting in that retailers will have to go, we have to be more cautious because we don't want to be responsible for, for you know getting people sick? Well, I think all employers are going to feel that way, and I'm not certain that retailers feel particularly different than other employers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the main, this is why there will be please wear a mask signs is because vaccination is absolutely the number one thing we can do to protect ourselves. But, you know, we don't, won't know who has been vaccinated and we don't know who's mm-hmm. at more risk. And so we wear a mask not because of ourselves, but because of the others who are in the store, the employees and the other customers. Are you in BC? Obviously, we're announcing step three. We're probably in Canada now in the furthest along the road there. And across the country, though, where how do you see things panning out in each province? Uh, are we all sort of heading in the same direction? Or do you see when you see what's happening in Ontario, think, OK, well, that's going to take a little longer. Well, Ontario has been slower Mm -hmm. um, to remove restrictions. To be fair, their case numbers have been higher. Likewise, Manitoba has been a bit slower, and I think their um, next date is July 11th. So, you know, not everything has returned at once. Mm -hmm. But I think you're seeing a trend across the country as vaccination numbers rise that, uh, that public health authorities are having more confidence and there's more of a return to normal. Normal is where we want to be. I appreciate you being here today with me, Greg. Oh, you're welcome. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett today, and we've heard uh, some of the good news uh, earlier, about half an hour ago, when the Premier talked about uh, going into step three. Uh, And by some accounts, we've done a pretty good job here in BC when it comes to tackling COVID-19. And today we had, he also said, he jumped the gun, he said, but uh, 29 cases of COVID-19 were counted today. That's the, that number in Tim, uh, my techie here, he, he counted, he looked back and that was the last time you saw that was July 30th, 2020. It was almost a year ago that we had 29 cases. So uh, that is uh, something to be proud of. Uh, you know, but a keen watcher of COVID uh, around uh, of COVID around the world, to be honest, is uh, former CKNW reporter Shane Woodford, who is now based in Denmark. 
Uh, and so I've dragged him onto the line here to talk about COVID around the world and COVID in Denmark. And I have uh, some questions for him. Hey, Shane. George, how are you? I'm good. First question. Snaka du dansk and nu. That was me asking Shane if he spoke Danish yet, uh, because he's living over there, and I lived over there a long time ago, and so my Danish is pretty rough, but I remember learning it. It's, it's actually a good language, especially for you, Shane, because you're a mumbler like me, and uh, you know Danish I'm, is a... I'm a mumbler. Well, you speak fast. You speak fast. You're a fast... You know you're a fast talker, and, and yeah, I'm a fast talker, and Danish is one of those languages that is really perfect for fast talkers. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard Danish, and it literally sounded like somebody gargling vowels. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't tell one word from the next. That's God's honest truth, and it's it's taken me a long time of being here and sort of growing accustomed to language to be able to differentiate words. But you're right; they they speak very very quickly and jam everything together. They do. It's it's uh, but they're a fun, it's a fun country to live in for sure. I know that because I spent a year yeah. there. So. Hey, uh, so let's start with Denmark. We're pretty, we're pretty cocky today about what's happening in BC with our numbers and the fact that we're going into step three. What's going on in Denmark now? Uh, Denmark, the infection is dropping. Uh, we're doing really well. We're down into the you know 100, 200 range. Uh, that was down from about you know two, three, four thousand cases over Christmas, and we saw that spike driven by the Alpha variant. Um, the bad news is, or at least the, the sort of bit of gloom in all the good news, is that uh, the Delta variant is spreading quickly here. Now, mm-hmm. while overall cases are down, George, we're seeing a very similar pattern uh, when the Alpha variant arrived on the scene in Denmark. And again, with the situation with cases were going down. But what we saw was a greater proportion every week. The proportion rised. Uh, the number of variant cases that were taking over with the Alpha variant. Now we're seeing that. Uh, with data from the uh, the Danish version of the CDC today, where they showed the weekly uh, proportion of Delta variant cases that are coming up in all of the analysis of the positive test results, and it's now over 20%. And it went from 6% in one week to 20% the next week, George. That gives you some idea how that's spreading. Now, again, while overall cases are going down, it is an indicator that there is a storm brewing out there. What that storm's impact is will be, we, we have yet to see, but something is coming our way. Denmark's about the same size as British Columbia. I think it's about five and a half, six million people there. I think. No. Yep, pretty and close. So the and what's their so what's the percentage on on vaccinations? Uh, percentage on vaccinations, we're doing not so. Yeah, we're a little bit behind you guys right now. We're what are we? Fifty six point one percent with first dose. Thirty two point two percent fully vaccinated. So so higher, and they, they went for the double dose faster than we did. We sort of did the first yeah. dose faster. So it's, yeah, it's interesting they, to see that yeah. every every place seems to have a different approach. Sweden was the great experiment. How'd that go over the, across the water there? They <laughs> they chose to to do the mass, uh, you know, let let people just ride, let it ride. How'd that work yeah. out for them? Yeah, not so well. Um, mm-hmm. They've seen just a catastrophic number of, yeah. of infections and deaths like exponentially higher than anything uh, Denmark, Finland, or Norway combined has seen. I just read a report out of Sweden uh, just a couple hours ago uh, that looked at seniors' care home deaths uh, in the pandemic so far. Uh, seniors uh, in care died uh, at a rate that was just mind-numbing in Sweden. Matter of fact, uh, fully half of all Sweden's coronavirus deaths are seniors in care homes. Yeah. Uh, it is unbelievable. Uh, they they were slow off the start. They scoffed at all the restrictions in the countries around them. They made fun of Denmark 
Uh, and then they saw, uh, I remember, it was just the weirdest thing, George. I mean, they held a press conference last summer uh, where they said that the Stockholm Sweden was going to be, uh, was going to reach herd immunity in a matter of weeks. Mm. And as we saw going into the fall, Stockholm and the rest of Sweden uh, saw exponentially higher numbers than they did their first wave uh, and their second wave. And they had barely weeks between their second and third wave, which was the deadliest wave they'd ever seen. Hmm. Uh, so that that program over in Sweden has just been a complete and utter disaster. And the only reason that they actually kind of looked in the mirror and made even an attempt at a course correction uh, was when the king of Sweden on, a, on his annual Christmas uh, ad- address um, literally said, and it was astounding that he would say it, but he said that the uh, the Swedish coronavirus strategy had completely failed. Wow. The Swedes were dying and suffering uh, greater than they should be, and that made the government, the government couldn't, you know, they couldn't come out and blast the king of Sweden to so no. force them to finally make some changes. Yeah, because they don't wade into politics, uh, just like the Queen of England, uh, our queen here. Uh, yeah. The you were quite hyper. If I recall, you were quite critical of British Columbia because of our testing, the lack of testing. You were you thought we could do yep. more, but you know, yep, it turns out maybe that wasn't a problem. Yeah, uh, how do you know? <laughs> well, we're looking at our cases, and we're we're further along yeah, but, than okay, other places. Let's look at your cases today uh-huh. in Denmark. We did. Um, let's see here. We did over three hundred thousand tests today. Mm-hmm. So, um, 306,301. You know how many tests you guys did in, in BC? 3,600. Yeah, but that's my <laughs> it point. Matter. But we're, well, no. You, if, you're not, if you're not testing the population and you're not sequencing and analyzing all of those mm-hmm. results, you're essentially flying blind. And BC is flying blind. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't see the alpha variant wave coming. Um, I don't know what the Delta situation there is, but I can tell you it's going to hit you the, 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 what the degree is, uh, has yet to be seen. We have vac- uh, vaccines, which is a, which is something we didn't have when the Alpha variant arrived. But George, we're seeing punch through on vaccinations and Delta variants in England for both first and second yeah. doses. And then if you have any kind of vaccine hesitancy, well, that pool of people is going to be, you know, target number one for the Delta variant. I heard, I heard an epidemiologist okay. in England the other day say it's like a heat-seeking missile for the unvaccinated. All right, Shane, uh, we will be watching that, and I appreciate you, if you, you staying up late to take, take, the, take our call. We'll probably talk to you again in the future, and how uh, to go? We'll talk later. Susan <laughs> Tack. <laughs>